0: Welcome to Alaska's Political Pipeline. I am David Bernkopf.
1: And I am Rebecca Polsha.
0: And today I am using a new microphone. I just Which is would, better,
1: superior to, than mine.
0: It is a better <laughs> microphone. If you could only see this, you would know that it is a much better microphone. But I was using a poorer microphone. <laughs> so hopefully your this will sound better.
1: Your mic screams, I cost a few hundred dollars. Mine says I'm $20.
0: I want my name on this microphone. (laughs) Right now it just says front, which I think means I'm supposed to be talking into this front part of it. But I want my name on it as the David Bernkopf Memorial (laughs) Microphone because I made such a stink about it. Uh, Speaking of making a stink about things.
1: Nice transition.
0: We are once again going to be discussing the situation regarding the Winter Shelter Plan, which is a bit of a mess, and that wow. is,
1: right to put it mildly. That is mild. Oh, my gosh.
0: So let's go over what has happened in the last couple of weeks, because it's kind of stunning. So we went out and covered on October 16th, the first day of the uh, abatement mm-hmm. at 3rd and Ingra. Mm-hmm. And Lauren Maxwell covered people being moved into the Aviator Hotel. Mm-hmm. The plan at that time, the city was quite proud of the fact that it had found 574 beds. 100 at the Alex Hotel, 274 at the Aviator, and then 150 in a what's called a congregate setting, which means people don't have their own rooms or double rooms. It's like the Sullivan Arena, one yeah. big facility. Then it turned out that that was not ready on the 16th. It still isn't ready as of today, the 25th. It is due to be open next week sometime. But it turns out that those 574 rooms, which the Assembly and the Mayor's office were very proudly announcing would handle more than enough uh, space for... Uh, people who wanted winter shelter. Very quickly after we covered that abatement process beginning, it's not enough.
1: It was one day, one day of thinking this process is running smoothly. We're going to have enough time. We're going to beat winter. And very quickly it's oh, we need several more places to stay.
0: So the number went up initially over 700 people wanting space. Now, as of Monday – This week it was almost a thousand people have signed up for winter shelter. And there is some number, maybe around fifty or so, of people who signed up who have shelter and want to move to these locations. So it's not as if that number is some firm number of people who want shelter. It also that number can grow because People can still sign up and ask to be a part of Winter Shelter. And when we ask why the numbers are so wrong, we won't go into the reasons <laughs> here because we're actually working on a story that will explain it in detail. But it has to do with a math problem that uh-huh. may have been the wrong problem. Yeah, they were figuring we had roughly 700 people at the end of last winter. We found housing for roughly 300 people. So we probably have 400 people. Mm-hmm. And that's not right, and it's quite stunning how wrong it is. It's probably more than double the number they thought they they had.
1: The behind the scenes I'd love to see of this because can you imagine you it's just you're kind of almost like slapped in the face with like here's several hundred people who need a home and it's almost November in Alaska. You know, right. that's a task to take on this late.
0: And whenever the congregate setting comes on, 150 rooms, that, again, is not an ideal situation mm-hmm. for a lot of homeless folks who don't want to be in that kind of a situation. They didn't like it at Sullivan Arena. They would like some more privacy. There's a counter argument to that that in the winter— if you don't want to get sick or die, you're better off in a congregate setting than in a tent in the snow.
1: Yeah. I think the majority of people, because you know, we've talked to so many homeless people, um, you know, I think the majority of them that I have spoken with did not like staying in the cell. It was loud. You could have your stuff stolen. You know, it just was a temporary fix, but it must have been, you know, high stress environment and
0: Yeah, and one of the things Alexis Johnson, the homeless coordinator, has said over and over again, and the assembly has backed up this idea, is that they didn't want to do another giant Mm -hmm. 500-person congregate setting mass shelter, that this was a pilot program at the old solid waste facility for 150. And now, who knows, they may have to go back to a larger congregate setting anyway after all this because they still – need somewhere between four and 500 new beds, or people will have to stay outside in the winter. Mm -hmm. And we know from the point in time count last year that there were well over 300 people who didn't want to go to the Sullivan or didn't go and wanted to stay outside. Who knows what that number will be this year? That point in time count won't be done until January in the depth of the winter, Luckily, we haven't had any snow yet, but
1: yeah. it's gotten cold. It's cold at night. Things are freezing, you know, the water's getting frozen. Um, there's still, like, every time I drive past the certain camps, it does not seem like anything's getting smaller at this point. You know, on Third and Ingra, they took out the big, you know, the fire truck and the buses and the boat, but things still look pretty packed everywhere you go.
0: I mean, what I hear out there is that there are empty tents out there now mm. and there are still some people but that that camp will be abated again we should go back over what the legal issue is here the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals has ruled and they cover the Western United States that you cannot make people leave public land if you don't have a place for them to go and the uh, Muni's argument right now is that they still have enough beds available and will next week to finish abating that one location. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, the other big locations at Cuddy and at Davis, there's no plan now to abate them because there's no place for those people to go. Mm-hmm. And we are going to keep following this story. I, I mean, I think I speak for you that we would like to not have to cover <laughs> this story and, anymore. Yeah. We would and, like for it to be solved Yeah, as everyone in town would.
1: Oh, gosh, I think this whole town, you know, people are really frustrated. From no matter where you look at it, it's a frustrating event.
0: Right. And I'm sure everyone involved in this is frustrated, Mm -hmm. including the 500 or so people who would like to be inside. Oh, yeah. Totally. And thought they might get inside and who knows if they will. Speaking of winter, one other little note on winter is that the mayor has announced his new snow removal plan. It involves uh, having some extra people on standby to move snow. It involves a little more money. The mayor says he added a million and a half dollars to snow removal. The assembly says it's really only another half a million. But regardless, that snow removal plan has not yet been tested. (laughs) But when there are more than four inches of snow on the ground, there's a new emergency system that can be uh, declared and that will lead to extra people to clear the snow. And again, I think it's safe to say that with an election coming up, <laughs> if we have another snowy year like last year, and that would be unusual, but if we do, mayor has said that he will do a better job. And he will be judged on that,
1: I imagine. Oh, I'm sure. There's nothing to make people more irritated faster than snow removal, and it was a mess. It was, you know, because we still have to show up for work. As long, you know, half the world still has to show up to work from no matter what. And those roads. I mean, and to be fair, we had a great amount of snow, and that was unusual. But still, it was a mess. And canceling school for two days—that's unusual. Right. I mean, I think.
0: The thing that the mayor referenced at the news conference I went to is you had this not only an unprecedented amount of snow, but that it came like one storm after oh, the yeah. other after the other. And so the plan, which involves you clear the main streets first, then you clear other streets. Well, they never got around to clearing those other streets mm-hmm. because they had to go back and start over again a few days later. So it, it's not that it was an easy situation to deal with. It was a tough, unexpected amount of snow. But if you're the mayor, you're going to get the credit or the blame in Uh a situation like that. Let's move to a state issue now. It's still a ways away the next legislative session. I think January 17th is the day that I see on the calendar. But we're talking PFD again. Again. Because we are still in a situation, according to the board of trustees that oversees the PFD that is not sustainable. There is not enough money available for PFD checks as people have come to expect and state expenditures. It's not growing as fast as inflation, the investments, everyone knows it. There are promises to deal with it every legislative session. And we shall see whether this legislative session will deal with it. But as of now, no one is really <laughs> taking this issue on. No, full steam ahead.
1: You know, it's it's unfortunate because I recognize that it is difficult to get elected, and then you know, just these promises of the PFD, and there are repercussions for their for lawmakers voting to protect it, and. But it still is a mess. <laughs> There's also
0: one thing that I hadn't really thought about till I was reading some of the discussion by the Board of Trustees is the PFD is really a huge benefit to lower-income people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so to, every time you cut the PFD, it becomes a kind of tax on the poorest people in the state. And so there is a, that is a part of the reason why politicians hesitate to cut the PFD, not only do people expect it and think of it as something they are in fact owed, but that the cutting it hurts the poorest people
1: the most. You know, it's it's funny when we talk about the PFD because, you know, uh, before I had children, I didn't think much about the PFD except for it was, you know, it was lovely to get. And then you enter into these territories when you have children of how does that, that PFD perform in the family? Is that PFD for the child or is that the family's money? And so that's a whole other issue of, of the money and the impacts of the money. And it's a very, I didn't realize it until I had children, how controversial that was to be like, whose money is this?
0: So are there conversations in the families, you know, and in your family, like the kids say, wait a minute, that's my money. I want to go. Oh,
1: absolutely. Like my kids asked, you know, what, what have you done with that money? And I have put it into the Alaska Scholarship um, fund for college so you know but it is a an issue of me being able to do that which makes it a hot topic you know like your your privilege in life of oh so it's the family doesn't have to have it to survive versus whose money is this
0: i hadn't thought about that it's
1: a it's an incredible it's a hornet's nest
0: a kid <laughs> saying you know what i want to I want to buy my own subscription to Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's my money. Why can't I do that? I want to buy
1: a car. It's my money. But is it the family's money or is it your money? You know?
0: I hadn't thought about that. So there you go, politicians. Think about (laughs) that
1: one.
0: I want to ask you something about a gentleman who just passed this week. Uh, I haven't been here long enough to know of him, but it's interesting, the passing of Vic Fisher, and he is known for what?
1: Well, he was the he was an Alaska Constitution um, signer, last one alive. He, you know, he died at ninety nine. But he was so active in politics, like incredibly active in politics. No matter what, he seemed like ageless at the time. Every event I've been at for politics, I swear he's been there.
0: You know, it's interesting to me. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so the founding people of Pennsylvania. Or Ben Franklin, Uh, you know, (laughs) William Penn, it's named after him. You know, you're talking about hundreds of years ago. And here, history is so much closer.
1: It's neat. It's really neat.
0: And he's the last living person, Mm -hmm. I think. And there might be a secretary or something who was involved in the Constitutional Convention. But he's the last signer Mm -hmm. of the Constitution, the last person who was involved in that debate about what to have in a Constitution,
1: You know, I thought was most interesting, you know, because he's been involved in a lot. And when the family was talking about him, I thought what was interesting was what he wanted to be remembered for, which is making it so Alaska doesn't have a death um, penalty. Really? And I thought, oh, wow, that's fascinating that like what you what you would like to be remembered for versus this huge body of work that you have.
0: It is interesting that this state doesn't have a death penalty, Mm -hmm. given that it was. It seems now to be a slightly more conservative than liberal state, but I guess at the time, it was a much more evenly split political situation. And
1: even you know, even then, you know, baggage was, you know, uh, Democrat, and we're all over the place. <laughs> all over the
0: place. Speaking of the history of Alaska, uh-huh. I don't think you've heard about this podcast that I'm going to recommend now. Okay. We have nothing to do with it. But I listened to a new podcast the other day called The Alaska Myth. And I am sure it will be a controversial podcast. But
1: Oh, I, I know nothing about this. I
0: found it fascinating. It is examining the mythology of Alaska and Alaskans. And the first episode huh. examined the issue of calling Alaska the last frontier.
1: Oh, because yeah. of
0: all the implications involved in how can it be the last frontier mm-hmm. if people were already here and people were had cultures and had thriving mm-hmm. economic systems that it reflects what was called white settler mythology in this podcast and tied in very much to white settler mythology in the lower 48 mm-hmm. where you – Eliminate and degrade the humanity of the peoples, the native indigenous peoples who were there before because they're not using the land properly or, um, you know, whatever your view at the time was, those people aren't real settlers. Mm -hmm. We're the people who are braving the elements to settle this place. And, and, it, and the, this first podcast talked a lot about the lone individual and that being huh. a huge part of the mythology of Alaska, the lone person fighting the elements. Like
1: I made it here on my own kind of mentality, yes. no help. You know. yes.
0: But this is the interesting thing that, again, I hadn't thought about. That is completely antithetical to the way Alaska Natives viewed society because they viewed a supportive group of people – helping each other the idea of a, the lonely individual braving the elements would seem kind of make not not make much sense to them mm-hmm. in that cultural viewpoint so it's I'm sure there will be people who will find this to not be of their liking but I found it to be really thought-provoking.
1: You know, and the thing about language is, like, language is always evolving. It's always changing. You're, you constantly are reflecting about your choice of words five years ago, ten years ago. It's amazing. You know, things you would have said in high school that now are not acceptable, but just were fine 20 years ago or whatever. But I remember a point, and I actually remember this, the, the idea of it being called the last frontier, where someone had said to me, well, it's not a frontier. There were people here, and then ever since then, this was like several, several years ago. Every time I hear it, it does give me pause to be like, "Well, that is not really reflective, and that's not inclusive." You know, it's it's a fascinating thing, but it is the state's tagline. So, like when people say, "Like what? A, what's a Texas, the Lone Star State?" Like what? I, Nobody would think much of it, but maybe that is, you know, what? where do these things come from? And they just are part of you inherently, but just the reflection of trying to determine language and its its involvement with others.
0: And that's why the, the, it's interesting to think of this as mythology, because some of it is based on reality. I mean, people did come out here and live hard lives and still do. You know, they they are they see themselves as battling the elements Mm -hmm. to survive. That's not untrue, but it's also not true that this was this empty land. And one of the things that was most interesting to me was that one person that this podcast cited, and I'm going to try to get the podcast host on our, now I'm
1: going to have to go listen to this. I'm fascinated. I think she'd
0: be an interesting interview. Um, some of their experts blame the very well known and very well respected outdoor photographer John Muir,
1: Oh, okay. who made
0: a famous trip to Alaska, uh-huh. took a lot of pictures, and went back to the Lower Forty Eight, telling people all about this pristine, empty land. Empty land. Interesting. And that that made people think because he was so well known and respected that mm-hmm. this was this pristine, empty land. Because he had one famous incident where he said, you know, I'm standing in a place, I took this picture, in a place where probably no man has ever set foot.
1: Oh, interesting. And the
0: historian said there's probably not many places in Alaska where nobody ever set foot. Right, right. They just weren't you. You,
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah.
0: So it's called the Alaska myth. It's a good podcast. And, you know, it's not as good as our podcast. (laughs) We don't want to get carried away here and have you abandon us. us. (laughs) 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 Because we will be back in a couple of weeks with another podcast. So thank you very much, Rebecca.
1: Thank you.